This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, June 6, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. President Trump's decision to end U.S. participation in the Paris Climate Agreement is still unclear in its impact. As a voluntary, non-binding, unratified international agreement, it's hard to see how it will change much about climate policy. Ryan Maui, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, is not heartened by the response, which appears to be a regression to partisanship. What is the biggest misunderstanding that people have about uh, President Trump's decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord? Well, I'd say that there's more than one misunderstanding, uh, but the one that seems to be causing the most consternation amongst the media and politicians is the economic arguments uh, that Trump is making versus the scientific arguments uh, that are being made by the scientists. In effect, the the two groups are talking past each other. Uh, They're talking from their positions of strength and really not acknowledging each other's perspective, policies, weaknesses. Uh, In in that respect, uh, the the tribes are are talking past each other. Um, So one example is uh, Trump's speech at the Rose Garden ceremony where he announced his the withdrawal from the Paris Agreement uh, was was wholly an economic speech. Uh, it was typical of his stump speeches that he gave prior to his, his election. Uh, it could have been given at any campaign stop in Iowa, Ohio, or Wisconsin. Uh, he talked about uh, jobs. Uh, he talked about you know energy independence, growth of the economy. And he framed the Paris Agreement as an assault or um, a a way that other countries would take advantage of the United States. And it fits with his his Make America Great, his America First, uh, respective trade and economic plans. Whereas the scientists were starting out with this, the consensus arguments that the science says this Therefore, we must do that. Which is, which is, of course, a quantum leap in logic, just to begin with. That's correct. Yeah, the, the Paris Agreement um, is couched on you know, a set of voluntary agreements by countries to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions to a certain level based on the subjective two-degree threshold, where once we reach two degrees warming above a pre-industrial baseline, uh, in effect, all hell is going to break loose. It's going to be a tipping point of um, apocalyptic events that demand we do things now. Uh, and that argument is made on the, um, on the backs of many climate, science, or climate models, information that's predictive in nature, from these models hasn't necessarily held up to, you know, verification or, or the scrutiny of many climate change skeptics or folks that focus on the uncertainties of the climate models. Uh, hasn't really met their uh, their level of satisfaction, and instead the the scientists just claim that there's a consensus, and the scientific community agrees uh, that these events will happen, and getting down the road to the year 2100. A lot of things obviously can happen that aren't related to the uh, the climate due to technological advancements, etc. 
but the, the assuredness of the scientific community is always couched in this consensus number that 97% of the scientists agree X, Y, and Z is happening. So therefore, we must do this. And that this, in this respect, was the Paris Agreement. It was a watered-down version of, of many, you know, uh, climate deals that could have occurred, that could be legally binding, that would have demanded hard choices and sacrifices in order to reach these goals. And instead, it was very soft, um, soft language, uh, voluntary agreements, mainly meant to get around uh, Senate treaty ratification. Um, but Trump, hearing those arguments and his skepticism, I think that's a good word to describe, the skepticism of, of these large global agreements, which he saw in economic terms. Uh, he saw it as uh, in respect to trade deficits. He saw it in the respect of economic growth. And the states that he campaigned in and visited uh, during, during uh, the summer of 2016, he visited Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. These states have been hollowed out from manufacturing, which Trump saw as being uh, the effect of international trade agreements that put the United States on an unlevel playing field and other nations were, were taking advantage of the United States. And in my opinion, he felt that this Paris Agreement or the climate negotiations in general were going to continue that trend. And that's what his speech focused on almost wholly. Uh, Administrator Pruitt of the EPA, he spoke fairly uh, at length on most of the Sunday shows and uh, in his Rose Garden um, uh, speech after the president. And then he had another little press briefing uh, the day after. And that was the language he was using. There, there wasn't much language about the Sunderline science. So the media, in respect to Trump's decisions, uh, they, listened, they listened to the speeches, I'm sure. But the only question that they were coming back with is, well, does the president believe in climate change? Does the president believe that uh, the, of global warming? And that's honestly, that's been the wrong question now for, for a decade. Uh, because you can, you can say that the climate's changing. You can say that man is partly, mostly, all totally responsible. But that doesn't get you to the point of understanding how that's happening. Uh, you can believe in climate change, yes or no, the binary, binary choice. But that doesn't make any that doesn't follow that you understand the process of how that's occurring. And if scientists were asked um, to provide you know levels of certainty on things, they still have to they still have to prescribe a number or you know I'm 50% certain or 90% certain similar to the IPCC, how they couched certainty in, in their various reports. Um, so the media, and many a activists are clearly 100% certain, and they demand action now. They're, you know, marching, uh, protesting. Uh, this is a, an issue that's very important to them. Uh, whereas Trump, he's obviously not at 100%. It's not clear where he is on that line. He, he's at 50% or 25%, or at zero. 
many of his public public statements have been uh, snarky. Uh, they haven't exactly been uh, deep question answer sessions on climate change. And to be fair, most politicians aren't expected to have a deep knowledge of science in that way. Uh, standing on your feet and asking or in, in plain jeopardy is not a, a politician's you know, strong suit. Uh, so what folks have gleaned from Trump's climate messages is basically what he said in tweets, uh, quips he's made on the campaign trail. And we have an example today uh, in the Washington Post and Newsweek and other places where anonymous sources have leaked that Trump was joking on the golf course uh, that uh, well, climate change is, you know, is such an issue, but uh, weather forecasters can't get the weather forecast right, you know, a few days from now. So why should I believe climate change forecasts? And that has caused, you know, an uproar. That's the new scandal. That's the scandal for today. Is that well? Maybe Trump just abandoned the entire Paris tri uh, climate agreement because he thinks that weather forecasters get the daily forecasts wrong. The folks that feel weather forecasters are doing a good a good job are obviously upset, whereas the ones that feel like you know weather forecasters sort of get it wrong half the time. Now you know that's that's where my career is and my expertise is in weather forecasting, and at my company. We focus considerably on providing the highest quality, most accurate weather forecasts, and we update them day to day. We use various models. Uh, the weather models are very similar to climate models. They operate in the same manner. And the weather models are you know, initial value problems. You have to start from point A, you know, time zero, to get to a solution. Well, in many cases, days five to seven, those weather models become useless. They become actually hindrances to you for you to make a good forecast. They have no skill. And we have many different choices and solutions. But after you get to a certain point, uh, the problem becomes less deterministic and more probabilistic. We have to make uh, an assumption about the, you know, a plus or a minus sign here or there, where the forecast is trending. Is it going to be a warm summer? Are we going to have a more active hurricane season? And these are the type of subjective uh, answers that weather forecasters typically give that may actually seem like hand wavy uh, guesses in that respect. And in reality, there isn't really much punishment for a meteorologist for being wrong. Uh, the, the people sort of have it ingrained in their minds that these forecasts do come with a level of uncertainty. There's, for instance, a 50% chance of rain. Uh, in reality, that doesn't mean that there's a coin flip. It means that maybe 50% of the region, the real estate, will see the rain. The public has their own idea about what 50% means to them. They go about in their daily life, in their actions, and they plan accordingly. 20% may mean I'm not going to even take an umbrella to work, or I'm going to plan for an outdoor lunch. Now, when we extend that same logic to climate, and we're talking about events that may occur in the year 2100. Uh, there's, there's always this level of skepticism about events that are going to happen way down the road. Um, sea level rise, hurricanes more intense, uh, even blizzards more intense. It seems like droughts and floods, it seems like every weather event under the sun is going to change. 
and in, in that respect, it, it will change. But we, we don't have information that's good enough in our observational databases on hurricanes, for example, to combine that with weather models or climate models 20, 30, 50 years down the road. What do you make of the uh, argument that uh, some people have made that the Paris Climate Agreement was uh, simultaneously going to be very expensive for the United States and, of course, non-binding because the Senate didn't ratify it? That's, those are two very important uh, distinctions. Uh, the Paris Agreement, uh, when it was first being developed after Barack Obama's re-election in 2012, when he didn't have to face the voters, uh, unfortunately, his, uh, his blue state senators and red state senators were in, in, the, in the GOP in the House. Uh, the House Democrats were wiped out. Um, so it, it came down to a point where there was no way that treaty Senate ratification would even occur. Uh, even looking back to 2009 and 10, when Obama and the Democrats held a supermajority in the Senate, a cap-and-trade bill could not pass. So the expectation that a, a two-thirds majority of a, a Senate treaty was going to occur uh, meant that Obama was going to have to look for some sort of compromise. He was going to have to talk to the other side. Um, there, I, I believe certainly that there is a place somewhere out there where both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, could come together on an agreement that could you know, get 100 votes in the Senate. Uh, work towards that end was not done and has not been done. Uh, instead, the international treaty that was created by, through the auspices underneath the United Nations was meant to be non-binding. It was meant to be voluntary. However, there was money to these funds um, for green development, helping nations, underdeveloped nations, uh, with power sources, essentially green power sources, uh, which was going to be provided by the rich countries. In that respect, it was going to be the United, United States that was going to provide the bulk of that money and had provided a billion dollars to the UN Green Fund under Obama. Uh, that money was not in a congressional appropriation. That was sort of an executive decision. And in that respect, the Paris Climate Agreement was an executive order. But to the extent that it is uh, voluntary, it strikes me that it would be hard to argue that it would be necessarily expensive. That's a, that's a good question about if something is a voluntary, non-binding international agreement, then where do these costs come in? And the costs do come in to these green, these green development funds, which could add up to billions um, in, over the next several years. And then there's a re-examination of how countries are doing five years, every five years or so. And if countries are uh, meeting their thresholds, that's, that's fine. So what is the next step here? The next step uh, for Paris seems to be uh, the United States slowly removes itself from the playing field uh, of Paris, but remains a part of the UN framework of climate change convention. So they're still effectively under this, the UN climate treaty. Uh, they should, will, the United States will have a seat at the table. And that's a worry of the media and Europeans, especially that the United States, uh, with Trump's leadership, will actually hurt climate uh, action as they see it by remaining uh, at the table 
and attempting to water down resolutions or working against the plans uh, of the Europeans. Uh, in, in that respect, the Chinese and the Indians really don't have to do much over the next 15 years in order to reduce their emissions, sort of been given a free pass. What is the current trajectory of emissions in the United States, and, and do we have any strong uh, probability about where U.S. emissions will be in 5, 10 years? Well, if you could predict that how the energy markets are going to work over the next 5 to 10 years, uh, with all the externalities, uh, not only you'd probably be pretty wealthy, uh, be able to to clean up in the in the markets, but you'd also have knowledge about um, economic uh, pressures that are happening around the world, in terms of the cost of energy. Uh, renewable energy is coming down in cost. We have the gas revolution. Uh, we will then begin to have the transportation of liquefied natural gas around the world. That entire market is opening up. The United States will become a, a giant exporter of liquefied natural gas. And as that becomes a cheaper source of energy, that natural gas then will back up renewables. So it'll be this hybrid mix. Unfortunately, renewables uh, in many places of the world aren't going to be very helpful. Uh, so you will always need a gas backup. Uh, nuclear should be in the mix, but environmentalists and others have worked against it. Uh, Europe, in that respect, their emissions have gone up because of their uh, deprecation and no longer supporting new building of uh, nuclear plants, especially in Germany. So instead, they have to replace the energy with coal or gas. Uh, the renewables are intermittent, and over the next 10 to 20 years, uh, we've seen uh, we will see the cost come down. We'll also likely have cheap gas. So in that respect, the emissions will plane out plateau in the United States. Uh, and in developing countries like China and India, as they become more advanced, their emissions will also then plane out and, and eventually they'll reach a peak. So that has nothing to do with a climate treaty. Uh, those are market forces that will happen all on their own. Uh, if you can provide solar panels more cheaply, as many of the opponents to Trump's decision are saying that China will then, you know, take over leadership in the solar panel industry. Uh, they'll they'll be able to create these products very cheaply. There's honestly there's protectionism against solar panels being dumped in the United States. They're too cheap. Uh, the problem with that uh, hooking up solar electricity around the around the United States is the national power grid needs to would need to be upgraded in order to handle it. Uh, that would involve major um, investments in in uh, infrastructure. You know something that Trump could obviously be for. So if you could couch an argument for climate action along with energy independence, for instance, that would likely get Trump's ear. Uh, that would probably perk up the ears of many uh, red state folks, especially, you know, in Iowa and Texas that are very happy to be using renewable energy, wind energy. Um, the, the availability of cheap energy is the goal. Uh, the emissions are heading down somewhat slowly, uh, but the market externalities over the next five to 10 years uh, uh, will determine that. Uh, if oil's at $150 a barrel, uh, for whatever reason, there's um, a reduction in supply. Um, it doesn't. There wouldn't seem likely to be a, a dramatic expansion in demand for crude oil 
over the next 20 or 10, 20 years for the, in that respect, uh, the emissions will be going down. So countries are meeting their standards or their, their goals, the self, self-imposed voluntary goals. They're sort of just meeting them by going under op- normal operating procedures, uh, business as usual as it's called. That's a situation that then should be good for the climate. That should be considered a good thing, that we should be celebrating that. We should be happy about that. We should try to continue upon that progress. Instead, instead uh, we seem to be going down the road of uh, uh, partisanship and politics, which is, which is fine. Uh, but the, the groups that could work together on these issues will end up talking past each other and will instead be looking towards the next election when then instead they can impose their views or their uh, policy goals uh, without the other party. So the pendulum swings back and forth. And while this happens, the iron law remains in place. People will vote their pocketbooks. Uh, Companies, governments, societies will work in their best and own economic interest. In that respect, in terms of these voluntary groups, everybody sort of is you know, make America or make their own country first, because uh, the voluntary um, commitments are just that, they're voluntary. And if they're not in the best interests of these countries, they're not going to do them. Ryan Maui is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.